Who is Jesus? You know, you would think that being a bunch of people sitting in a Christian church, that might be a moot question. Who is Jesus? Because, you know, we, if anybody, should know the answer to that question. However, when you take into account the three major branches of Christianity, when you take into account the literally thousands of denominations, when you take into account different offshoots, when you take into account lots of people's different opinions and thoughts and and discoveries and revelations of who Jesus is, all of a sudden the issue becomes a little bit more complicated than it might be otherwise. Who is Jesus? Who is this guy who's at the heart of Christianity that we propose to worship and serve and love? Who is he? Is he blonde hair, blue-eyed, white as a baby's butt? Well, a white baby's butt. (laughs) Is he a laid-back kind of guy? Did he have a good sense of humor? What does that mean to us if Jesus has a good sense of humor? Did he get angry a lot? Was he very emotional? Is he very emotional? What does that mean to us? Is Jesus a Calvinist? Is Jesus an Arminian? Is he free will? Is he predestination? Is he pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, rapture? What's his theological position? Who is Jesus? What's he about? What's he like? We've been in a series on the book of Mark. One of the Gospels tells the story of Jesus' time on earth. And we're getting near the end of that. We're in chapter 15 now. And we've been, the past couple weeks, reading about the trial of Jesus, Jesus before Pontius Pilate, him getting questioned, him going through the steps, the difficult, painful steps on the way to his eventual crucifixion. But we pick up the story here in chapter 15, after Pilate has finally decided that he is going to hand Jesus over to be crucified. He's essentially given in to the pressure. And so, up on the wall here will be the scripture, and I'll get my Bible here as well. I always do. This is Mark 15, starting in verse 16. It says, The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their, on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe 
and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. This is a terrible, horrific story. It is a story of a group of people deciding that they wanted to literally dress Jesus up to be something, a representation of something that they wanted to abuse. They dressed him up as the king of the Jews, as they understood that. They dressed him up to be an object of scorn, and then they scorned him. They dressed him up to be an object of derision and abuse, and then they derided him and abused him. They made Jesus into a tool to do what they wanted to do with him. They put a cloak on him. They put a crown on him. And then they treated him how they wanted to treat him. They played pretend with Jesus in the most terrible possible way. They decided who they wanted him to be, and then they treated him how they would have treated that person. Who knows exactly why they do it? Who knows the reason for them calling the entire company of soldiers together? Not just a couple soldiers, but they call the whole company together. Who knows why they dressed him up exactly like that? Perhaps it was resentment at the Jews. Perhaps it was resentment with... Uh, authority figures, perhaps it was resentment with, resentment with Herod, who was the ruler of the land, the Jewish people. Who knows why they did it, but they did it. They decided who they wanted to make him, and then they treated him terribly because of who they decided he was going to be. That was their interaction with Jesus. Now the crazy thing to me here in the midst of this is with all their ill intent, with all their abuse, somehow they got something right. When they dressed Jesus up with no goodwill whatsoever, when they placed that robe on him, when they put that crown of thorns on him, they got something right. Somehow these people communicated something deeper about who Jesus was, deep, meaningful truth. You know, when we look at art, modern uh, and not-so-modern depictions of Jesus, very often we will see Jesus depicted with the crucifixion or on his way there with a crown of thorns. This is something that is stuck with Christianity. This is an image that is hell, that there's something to it that some credence has been lent to. It's, it's like the cross. You know, the cross was an instrument of Roman torture. And yet now it serves as an image of Christianity. The crown of thorns, with no goodwill placed upon Jesus' head, somehow God used that to communicate something deep and meaningful about who Jesus was. I got to be honest with you, that confuses me. That frustrates me. Shouldn't it frustrate us a little bit? This terrible, terrible abuse of Christ. And yet, 
there's something that we can learn from how they dressed him up. I don't know, man. That sits a little weird with me. But it's true. It's true that there's something to this crown of thorns. There's something to who Jesus actually is. There's a way that God has used what they did to him for their own purposes, for his purposes. Crown of thorns. What does that mean? What's the significance of that? What does that tell us about who Jesus is? Tells us a lot. Here's the thing. It's not like these soldiers pre-ordered, mail-ordered a crown of thorns to be brought in. They were ready for, oh man, when this Jesus guy gets in here, we've got the crown for him. It's not as if they had that ready. What they were doing with this crown is they were approximating uh, the, the head gear that would be worn by Roman nobles, people of influence, kings. Uh, if you know, I don't know why it's, it wasn't there at morning church. It's not here tonight, but there's a Mike's Big Fat Greek Loser poster, if any of you have seen that before. It has Mike kind of wearing this little wreath of leaves on his head looking very noble. This crown of thorns is an approximation of that that they place upon Jesus here, dressing him up like like royalty as they understand it. But the thing is, is that when they get that crown of thorns, they go and pick up some thorns, thorn branches from the ground. Thorns were common In Israel at the time, they were commonplace. They were weeds. They were things that people didn't necessarily want around, unless they were making a specific hedge out of them. But a thorn is not a desirable thing. It's not a positive thing. But it's a common thing. So they go and they pick up some thorns, and they wrap them up. It says they twist it into a crown and place it on Jesus' head. Now, that may not seem so significant at first glance, but as I was struggling through this idea of how could God not only, like, use this bad for good sort of thing, but how could God specifically take a horrible, horrendous thing done to Jesus and speak truth to us through it, through their miscomprehension, speak trueness to us, I look at this and I go, wait a second. These men hoping to abuse and deride Jesus made a mistake as they did it. They took a piece of creation. They took a piece of nature. They took a piece of something that God himself made that was common, that was cast down, that was mundane, that was not wanted. They took that thing, that natural thing, and they wrapped it onto Jesus' head. And all of a sudden... When you realize that they took something that God had created, God had made, and used it for their ill purposes, you realize that God can use anything that he has made to communicate good. When we think about the thorns, 
We think about, as I said, common things. We think about pain. We think about something to be avoided. And as I've been saying this whole time, there's this deep truth communicated about Jesus through them. A crown is the glory of a person. It's something that they revel in. The word for crown used in the New Testament means that which surrounds a person even. It's, it's almost like an aura or an air. Like it's, it's, it's a def- definition of this person. The New Testament talks about us receiving the crown of life. Now you better believe that this part of your head isn't going to be the only part that survives to heaven. A crown of life is you are surrounded by life. Your existence has changed to life. And here, Jesus, having this placed upon his head, communicates something about who he is on the deepest level. He is a man who is acquainted. He is a God who is acquainted with suffering. It is a part of who he is. He is a God who is acquainted with the raw, basic stuff of reality, The thorn is a weed. It is not wanted. It is not desired. And yet it is placed upon Jesus' head and we learn who and what he is the God of. The undesirable, the unwanted, the commonplace, the painful. This tells us something about Jesus regardless of the intention with which it was placed. I was talking with uh, Fletch, if any of you guys know Fletch, earlier this week about this passage, and he shared Proverbs 12.4 with me that says, a good wife is the crown of her husband. He said, well, you know, we're, the church is the bride of Christ. So if the church is the bride of Christ and a good wife is the crown of her husband, then when Jesus has a crown of thorns that he takes upon his head, that he does not protest, maybe it means that us being broken and common and painful and simple sometimes is exactly what Jesus wants and can use and is a part of how he's decided to define himself. Now, I know that Jesus wants health for us, but I think he is right here with us. This is, this is his people. This is what he gets. This is what he does. These soldiers somehow taught us that. And I think a big part of why God let them in their ill intent do that why something good could come of this is because whenever you're interacting with the real Jesus, with Jesus himself, no matter how they wanted to dress him up, no matter who they wanted to pretend he was, they were interacting with the real flesh and blood Jesus Christ, God himself. And no matter what they did, no matter how they changed him, no matter how they thought they were representing him, he is still who he is. All the dress up in the world doesn't change him from being God, doesn't change him from having that power, doesn't change him from having the power of redemption. Whenever you're interacting on any level with any mistaken image, with any terrible idea, with any problem, with any break, whenever you're interacting with the real Jesus, he can redeem it because he is who he is. 
The problem for us, my friends, today in our day and age, is that we don't have physical body Jesus right in front of us. We don't have that. The soldiers had that. And we don't have Jesus physically standing here in the flesh. If he wanted to show up, I'd be into it. But we do have access to him. He's here in the spirit. But we don't have him physically in the flesh. But you know what else we have in common with those soldiers? Is that we also have a tendency to dress Jesus up. Our problem is, because we don't have him physically standing right in front of us, is that often when we try to do this, it ends up, instead of being a misunderstanding of of a literal Jesus, it ends up being a projection into the sky of who we think God might be. And then we interact with this projection that we put out there. And that can be really dangerous. It can be really dangerous when... We have had a parent, a father perhaps, who is distant and prone to anger. If we've had that, it can be easy for us to project out there images of the ultimate father figure of God in subtle ways or in not so subtle ways. And all of a sudden, we've got this idea, this false image of him floating around out there. Perhaps for some of us, that's what God kind of looks like if we're not careful. That's what Jesus looks like. When I ask the question, who is Jesus? Maybe for some of us, whether we'd admit it out loud, that's what Jesus looks like. In default mode. Maybe for some of us, you ask the question, who is Jesus? And the answer comes back, well, well, the answer doesn't come back, but in subtle ways, the assumption is, well, he's, he's kind of like a, a police officer. He wants to keep the order, wants to keep the peace, wants to keep people from fighting, disagreeing. Everybody just kind of stay in your rows, do your own thing, don't hurt other people, and, and that's who Jesus is. We can project that out. Maybe for some of us, Jesus looks like a philosophy professor aloof, unconcerned with, not that all philosophy professors are like this, but the idea, you know, this, this, this image of, of him being kind of aloof, not so connected, more theoretical. Maybe for some of us, Jesus, when we're not careful, looks like a financial planner, concerned with our success, going to help us get there. Is Jesus your buddy? Does he just want you to have a good time? Does he not really care that much about what you do? If you're doing good, doing bad, whatever, as long as you're having a good time, feeling good. You see, as we think about this, as we think about this question of who Jesus is, as we think about the ways that we might subtly assume that he is, one way or another way, even if we wouldn't speak it out loud, admit it out loud, say, yeah, Jesus is totally a cop. When we do this, the key to getting over that isn't necessarily to get it all figured out. 
to get all your ducks in a row, to have all the information you could have. The key is to interact with the real Jesus. Just like these soldiers with their mistakes, perhaps much more horrific than we would make, with their ideas, with their preconceptions, with their desires, with them making Jesus a tool, an object. When they interacted with the real Jesus, he was able to communicate some truth without speaking a word. Not a word. How do we, in our, in our quest, in our desire to discover him, to learn more about him, to grow in him, how do we not get all the answers, but put ourselves in a position to interact with the real Jesus and let him sort some of this stuff out for us? The small group I go to, Kimberly Skolton was sharing a story that she'd heard of a rabbi who was talking to, and I'm totally paraphrasing this, but the, the idea is what, what matters. A rabbi who was talking to Christians who proposed to be followers of Jesus, and he asked them, well, how often do you read the Gospels? And they said, you know, every once in a while. We read them. We're familiar with them. And he said, seems to me that you ought to read every single gospel every month if you're really considering yourself a follower of Jesus, if you're really trying to learn from him and know him and follow him. Seems like that'd be about right. Read the gospels every month, every single month for the rest of your life. That's challenging to me. I don't do that. I don't come anywhere close to that. Every once in a while I go, yeah, great idea, and then I don't do it. Tons of good intentions. Maybe, maybe it'll stick. Maybe that idea, because if we're going to get to know Jesus on his terms for who he really is, then there is no clearer way to do it than to read the Gospels, to read all of them, to read them closely to see what he says. I've shared it before, I'll share it again. I remember the first time I read the Gospel of Luke for myself, blew my mind. Had no idea who this guy was before then. What? He said that? What? He did that? What, he's not a total pansy lightweight? What? You know, like all the assumptions people. I've got a buddy who's got a tattoo that says Jesus didn't tap out. He's probably not to that side either. Sorry, I just felt the need to share that. Good guy, good guy, bad tattoo. As we read the scriptures, as we interact with Jesus, as we ask for him to reveal himself to us, I want to encourage you to do one more thing. Forget what you think you know about who he is. Sit down with the Bible. Sit down with the Bible. Don't, don't forget altogether. But when you sit down and you open up the scripture, don't assume that you know what he's going to say. 
Don't assume that you know what he's going to do. Don't assume that you know what it means. You know, I mentioned earlier the idea of like, are you predestination or are you free will sort of person? And if you're reading the Bible and every time you read like a sentence from Jesus and you go, see, see, yeah, predestination. You're using it to prove your points. You're using it to prove your preconception of who he is. Then you're missing him. Even if you're right, you're missing him. Perhaps if we sat down with a piece of paper and a pencil when we read those Gospels and we just put a tack mark every single time when Jesus said something, instead of trying to engage with it directly, instead of doing that, we said, boy, I wish so-and-so would read this. Then Then they'd get it. Put a tack mark there, I wonder what it would tell us about our presuppositions about Jesus and who he is and what he's saying. I think, friends, I'm not going to ascribe a particular exacting method other than reading the Gospels and trying to forget your assumptions and prove your own points. Because when we do that, we can be a lot more like these soldiers than we thought. Get to know Jesus on his terms, according to who he says he is. So I started with the question, who is Jesus? I don't end with an answer. I end with a prescription. It's find out. You've got the tools at your disposal. If you tonight know that there is a way that you have misestimated who Jesus is, and you know, you know that subtle projection stuff that I was talking about? You know that you're doing that. You know that you're defaulting to that. You know that Jesus is one of those things that I mentioned or another thing to you. I want to encourage you that there will be people in the prayer room right over there during the second worship set. There's going to be three songs. There's plenty of time. They'll stick around if you guys are in the midst of praying. Afterwards, if you need to, go over there. Pray with somebody about that. Pray with them that that God might reveal himself to you, that these these conduits in your mind that make you believe certain things that you kind of just default to those paths, that God can free you of that, and he wants to. I want to encourage you to take advantage of that. They're over there, and if you want prayer for anything else, you know, go pray that you don't have to pray about that sort of stuff. Any, any concern that you have, there's wonderful people in there who are willing and able to pray for you. Just stand with you, or sit with you if you prefer sitting to pray. Or lie on the floor with you, if that seems appropriate. Also, tonight, we're going to be having communion. There will be a station over here, a station over here, a station upstairs. This will be the gluten-free station. Communion is a wonderful place for people to meet Jesus. You see, because sermons are very intellectual things. We engage our minds, that's a good thing. You just engage your mind, I hope. I did. I hope you did. Communion is an opportunity for us to come, the Eucharist, to come and meet with Jesus and let him meet with you and engage with you. Jesus took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup said, this is my blood 
shed for you, the cup of the new covenant, the work that Jesus has done, the person who he says he is, the sacrifice that he's made for us, we can engage with that here tonight. And I ask you, as you come forward for communion, if you are a follower of Christ or want to be following him, come, take communion, and pray as you come up or beforehand and ask ask that Jesus would reveal himself to your heart in direct reception of this wonderful gift that he gives to us, that we can continue to dine with him and meet with him in this and accept the sacrifice that he makes, which we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening. Uh, Please take advantage of these things.